This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Dave Rubin, live from the local studio here in Miami, and joining me today is the founder of the Teal Foundation, the co-founder of PayPal and Palantir, Peter Teal, I could have given you like a whole bigger intro there. Anything else you want to throw in yourself? It's all good. G generally, the shorter the intro, the more flattering it is. You, oh. have, you have super long, you have a 20-page resume for people who've never done anything. So it's I was going to say, Renaissance man, disgruntled libertarian something. The longer something. the intro gets, the, the more it suggests that you're not really doing anything at all. Oh, all right. Well, you are doing a lot. I, have, I actually have notes. I never have notes when I do a show, but I was like, I want to cover some new ground and not just get into the the political thing that we're always fighting uh, with everybody about. Uh, but I thought I'd start because we are here in Miami. Uh, you know, you famously left San Francisco, moved most of the operation to Los Angeles. You do have a place in Miami. Um, how do you feel about this sort of movement of people across the country right now and, and sort of watching people migrate to different places to live very, very different ways? Well, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's surely a very healthy thing that, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's in retrospect, it's amazing that people were as stuck as they were in the places they were, they were in for, for such a long time. And, you know, the, the history of the U.S. was that this had always been a society where people moved a lot between places and, and the mobility, um, the physical mobility had actually gone down probably a lot for the last 40 or 50 years relative to the, you know, 200 year history before that. And so, uh, and you know, it's 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 probably the jury's still a little bit out whether this is a temporary or permanent feature, but it's 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 surely a healthy recalibration. It's it's sort of this idea you can always start over in this country, um, and one of the ways you start over is you move to a new place. Were you kind of patting yourself on the back that you were the first guy out of San Francisco? And my audience is well aware, as I've posted some videos from a recent visit to San Francisco, the way that place has just collapsed under progressive policies is is absolutely insane. I'm guessing you don't have any employees that are wishing that you guys had stayed, although you still do have some people there, right? Uh, there still are some people, not not very many that still are are living in San Francisco uh, proper. Uh, and uh, yeah, it is, it is really extraordinary. I lived, I lived in San Francisco from 2003 to 2000, 2018. And uh, it sort of, you know, it never quite got better, but the idea, it took a while for the idea to sneak up on people that it was actually on the slow decay deterioration thing. You know, the, the homelessness was always a chronic problem, but in circa 2014, 2015, you, you started to realize, you know, it's actually getting worse. And they're never gonna, it's not just that this is this fake problem that they're taking a long time to fix, it's they are, it's a fake problem they use to distract from everything else, they're never gonna fix it. So when you when you're here, and it's in also Florida, a real problem. You know? it, well, it's also right. It's it's clearly a real problem, but something that they either don't seem interested in fixing. Well, what do you think well, is the answer both, to that? Is there it a lot, that they're the, not interested? There, there are a lot of problems that are yeah. both real and fake. Yeah. So the homeless problem is, you know, yeah, it's it's a it's a it's an incredible problem, but um, it also you get a sense that it never gets fixed. And so if you if you talk about a problem that you're never going to fix, then you can avoid talking about all the other problems, <laughs> like let's say cost of living for. Um, out of control rents for people with homes, or um, broken schools, or you know, crime, or you know, there sort of are probably half a dozen other issues that uh, move to the bottom of the queue. As long as we talk about an unsolvable problem. When you were there, were you trying to talk to them about those things and say, guys, like, look at what is happening here and 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 the state of the decay? Well, on the on the on the city level, it felt it felt like uh, exit is much more powerful than voice. Yeah. You know, it is. Uh, it was. Uh, I'm not sure it's super corrupt, but uh, uh, San Francisco is super ideological in this uh, very left-wing, mm -hmm. very uh, unreformable way. And, uh, and uh, you know, it would be, you know, it's, it's, I always have a schizophrenic view about getting involved in, in politics, yeah. where it's, it's like super important and super toxic, <laughs> but, yeah. uh, but getting involved in uh, San, Francisco, San Francisco city politics, uh, that would be 
that would be absolutely an insane thing to do relative to just moving. You're not enough of a masochist for that. It's, it's uh, you know, I'm, I'm, heroism's good, martyrdom not so good, and uh, and uh, and yeah, the the relative uh, the relative sanity of getting involved in local politics or just moving out of San Francisco, you should always move. So to that point, one more thing on this. Um, so now you're here in Florida. You know, you have a place for the, here the winter, for, last, for the winter. Last few winters, so you're yes. split in time, and obviously you also have your place in LA. Uh, but do you feel a, a real tangible difference when you're here? I mean, you know, I left a year ago, and it's like I have not looked back, and mm-hmm. I'm, <laughs> I'm loving it here, and I see something so incredibly uh, powerful and flourishing here. Do you feel that when you're here? Uh, well, it, it has. You know, there is there is sort of just an extraordinary difference if you're in a place where you you just feel it's growing versus not, yeah. and it, and uh, there there's a sense in which uh, Florida Texas have this um, have this dynamic of where it's just growing. You know, every every storefront is full. There are no empty stores. You know, everything. It's not. I'm not sure it's quite booming, but it feels you know it feels healthy and growing. And then um, and then you know. Much of California does not quite have that feel, even though, of course, you know, Silicon Valley has been this odd place where it was a, um, you know, gold rush and everyone was depressed. Yeah. Even so, for the last <laughs> decade, so the, the, the Silicon Valley had a very odd dynamic, where it was a, a crazy boom that, that didn't actually feel that way if you, you know, walk down the street. And then, uh, and then certainly with the, with the COVID shock, the last few years, uh, it's quite different. I, I still think California. Is, is probably somewhat healthier than New York or you know completely bankrupt states like Illinois or you know non-states like Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but why, do, why sh- do you think healthier than New York? I think um, I think the I think there are ways that the the finance industry that New York is centered on is more movable than the tech industry in mm-hmm. California, and probably the very big tech companies like uh, Google and Apple. Um, it's it's hard to picture them actually moving out of California, whereas you can um, you can pick the, you can picture the big banks gradually moving out of New York, and certain cer- and and there's something about finance that's been a little bit more movable. It also paradoxically makes it more dangerous for California because um, if things ever go wrong, they will be so bust. It'll right. be like it'll be like Detroit, which thought that it had these captive big three car manufacturers and uh, could get away with very bad policies in Michigan, Detroit. For decade after decade, and then when you know when that industry finally went south, you know it was it was just unfixable. So do, the, do you so find that these... New York uh, New York's in a worse shape right now because people are are you know relatively more people are leaving. It's easier for the businesses to leave, um, and then maybe uh, maybe California, if it if it's not careful, you know it, it will at some point really go off the cliff. Right. Do you find that these things sort of happen slowly and then very quickly? So something like California, it's like, you know, Cali's lost almost a million people in these last three years. And a lot of them are high earners. I mean, these are people who are paying into the system that's ever growing. At some point, somebody has to look at numbers, right? And be like, none of this works. You know, or, or I guess maybe not, right? It just continues somehow, I suppose. Yeah. I, I, I actually, I don't know how many of them were the highest earners in California the last last few years. I think New York was was a little bit more that effect than than California. Uh, but yes, these things, you know, um, we have these odd dynamics where things go on for a very long time. They're not ultimately sustainable, but you know, there's, you know, there's some, there's some way. I often think that much of the 2000s and 2010s were this weird continuation of the 1990s. You know, the decades. There were things that happened. You know, you had 9/11. You had the global financial crisis, Trump election, Brexit. There were there were some events that happened in those 20 years, but it was surprisingly little. December 2019, I was reflecting on the 2010s, and I I, I realized there have been no retrospectives on this decade. And what actually happened in the hmm. 2010s? You know, we had marijuana legalization, you had Game of Thrones, yeah. and people <laughs> fell into their iPhones, and right. uh, and then uh, but then it was somehow just this this thing that was sort of a stretched exhausted version of the 2000s which themselves were a stretched exhausted version of, of the 90s and then uh, and then I yeah I, I want to say that in some sense you know March 2020 when covid hits um, we finally you know uh, a lot of these things finally accelerate and, so, so, and you know um, and uh, we're finally in the 21st century so that's actually a great segue to sort of where I wanted to start today because years ago once off camera you said to me I wouldn't be a libertarian if any of it worked 
And I just thought that line pretty much captures so much of what's happening, even right this moment. You referenced the last three years of COVID, where it seems like nothing really works anymore. Our government kind of mm -hmm. doesn't work. Our educational institutions yes. don't seem to work. The, the medical field yes. doesn't seem to work. Is it all, is it sort of obvious that they were all not gonna work at the exact same time? Or how did this happen? Well, I'm, you know, I'm tempted to say the rot has been building up for a long time. Uh, and you know, if, if you define technology as doing more with less, um, so many of uh, these institutions, educational and even healthcare, are, are, are kind of the opposite, where you get the same for more or you get less for more. So it's the anti-tech definition. Right, I think of the, right. the public schools, probably, in some sense, the quality of the education is is way lower than it was 50 or 60 years ago. The costs are way higher. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it is, you're getting less for more. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then there are you know, versions of this with healthcare where maybe, maybe people are getting a little bit better healthcare than they were 30 years ago, but at double the cost. Mm -hmm. So it's again, uh, you know, a lot of, it's, it's sort of like a 80% socialist healthcare system that we have, not 100%, but, but 80%. And there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of stuff that's screwed up with that. So yeah, I think, I think there are a lot of things that had not been working for, for quite some time. And maybe the, the interesting question is why people weren't noticing it or something like that. Yeah, you know, so but, what do you think that is? Is that just our modern lives? We're staring at our phones all day, we're, we're watching TV shows, and we're just not paying attention you know, the, to the, what's the, going the, on. There the, the, the were still some parts of our society where things were progressing. And there was certainly some um, you know, maybe narrow cone of progress around computers, software, internet, mobile internet, um, and then, um, the, those parts where there was still progress and where things were, were still getting better also were somehow distracting us from the lack of progress everywhere else, the ways in which we're not a progressive society. We use the word progressive, gets used all the time, but it doesn't right. stand for actual progress. And you know, I always say you know, the, the, uh, the, the iPhones that um, you know, distract us from our environment also distract us from the way it's strangely old. So you're looking at an iPhone while you're riding a 100-year-old subway that's completely busted in New York. And right. so there's something about... Um, we have some elements of progress, but they've uh, they've been uh, distracting us from you know the lack of progress or even the outright decline. And then um, and then it, yeah, there was some kind of crazy crystallizing event like like COVID, where you know you have no science, no rationality. Um, you know you can't. It, it takes a long time to even get the vaccine approved. You know the FDA is just a blocker. All all these things, you know, don't work. That well, they still work relatively better in the U.S. than many other countries, but uh, but all sorts of things are are really off. So, as the guy that was the first outside investor in Facebook, and sort of you know at the beginning of the of the tech boom twenty something years ago, were you thinking about some of that then, or was anyone talking about the fact that we might all get distracted by so much information and so much nonsense and scrolling and all of this stuff that everything else will just kind of slide away and we won't even know? Like, was there any inkling of some of that? Well, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't you know, I, I think it's always a little bit unfair to to um, put too much of the blame on, on Silicon Valley for this, where um, you know there, there was some innovation in Silicon Valley. Uh, there was a sense in which it, it probably was not not quite enough. You know, there was a, this manifesto that um, my venture capital fund put out in uh, back in 2011, where the tagline was, you know, they promised us flying cars, and all we got was 140 yeah, characters, yeah. and that wasn't it wasn't meant as an anti. Twitter argument per se, you know, like Twitter, you know, is, is a good business. It's good for the several thousand people that work there. Maybe there were <laughs> slightly too many, but yeah, yeah. Um, for at least for the several thousand that are left, it's a good business. It's yeah. uh, um, and you know, it, it somehow was transformative in some way, but it wasn't enough to you know take our whole civilization to the next level. And this was so. So I think Silicon Valley was was doing some things, but it was not enough. And then you know, there were arguments that. You know, it didn't have to all be in Silicon Valley. You know, they weren't, building, they weren't building flying cars in Silicon Valley. They weren't building flying cars anywhere else. Right. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So since you mentioned Twitter, let's just do an Elon thing for a second. As you watch the guy buy this thing, obviously you guys did PayPal together and everything else. 
do you think he realized what a freaking headache this thing was going to become and, and how, how crazy the product under the hood actually was? There was probably, there was probably, uh, I, 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 I haven't talked to him about the, the, uh, the Twitter, um, the Twitter acquisition. I think that, uh, or just you know, broadly I, speaking, figure, yes. finding that so many of these things are sort of broken under the hood in a way. Uh, I, th- I, think, I think he had some idea, but probably not, not the full extent, yeah. right? There was probably, you know, probably the fact that they were willing to sell Twitter to him should have told him. They were just, I mean, it was just, it was just you know, Jack Dorsey, all these other people. It was, you know, they were just these figureheads. And it was, I mean, the inmates were running the asylum. Yeah. And... Uh, and it was it was probably on some level, you know, you know there was some part of it that was somewhat ideological. There was a way that uh, Elon felt like the wrong person ideologically to take over Twitter. But I mean, after after a decade of the stock going nowhere, they were just completely exhausted. Yeah, you can only lose money for so long. You know, they, I don't know that it, much it, about they, business. They, they, didn't, but. they didn't lose money, but they didn't. If you look at the Twitter price, the day at the end of the first day of trading, so mm-hmm. you know. Price the IPO, it closes on day one, and I forget what the exact number was. Oh, I think it was it was roughly the same, right? It was roughly the same later. as yeah. at, at the point where Elon offered to acquire it. So it had gone nowhere in a decade, yeah. in a context where a lot of tech stocks had gone up. So right. I think they were they were just completely exhausted, and and it was sort of a plea for help. And then Elon probably on some level realized it, and on some level didn't realize quite how. But, you know, please take this company from right. us, and uh, <laughs> and you, know, you can hear that as uh, Elon, you're wonderful, you can do a great job, or. Uh, we're just really, really exhausted. And right. It probably was some combination of both. Right. So, all right. So, let's shift a little bit. I want to talk to you. One of the things that we've covered an awful lot on my show in the last two months is is a lot of the the globalist stuff and the WEF mm-hmm. and the meetings in Davos and all of these things. And I, I always try to say when I'm doing these things on the show, it's like I I don't have a, a full sense of how much influence these organizations actually have versus just they give these crazy speeches, we all kind of freak out about it, but what are actually the policies? And then on the other Mm -hmm. hand, you see someone maybe like a Justin Trudeau, who seems like he really is incorporating a lot of the policies of the WEF. So as someone that you've been to some of these Mm -hmm. things over the Mm -hmm. years, right? Like, what do you make of what actually goes on there? I assume you're usually kind of on the outside, even if you're there, just because of your political leanings. I I went to the WEF three times, 2008, 2009, 2013, so I haven't been in about a decade. Um, It is, I mean, there's there's things about it that are, maybe maybe talking some about globalism generally. Mm -hmm. Um, It is is somehow this official, ideology it is it's in some ways very exhausted so it's i think the tide is going out the high watermark year was probably 2007 hmm. and it's been going out in some way for 16 years but it's been going out very very slowly and um and there are sort of ways that uh it is um you know in theory um you know a borderless more integrated more peaceful world is is a good world for the 21st century? Theory, that's, that's, sure. That's sure. good globalization, <laughs> right? And then there are all kinds of versions of it that are kind of bad, where it just ends up being, you know, a, a, a racket for, um, you know, dictators stealing money and stashing it in Swiss bank accounts, which probably were Davos. You can think of it as a sort of reputation laundering operation yeah. or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Or there are all sorts of versions of it that are, you know, um, uh, deeply, deeply unhealthy. And I think it has been on this uh, this kind of autopilot where it just keeps going, even though it's very exhausted. Is, so I think it's been exhausted for for 15 years. Is that you, why, in some ways, the the rhetoric seems to ramp up? Where you know they really are making it sound like we control you and we are the gods, yes. and it's sort of I mean, like hysterical because perhaps there actually isn't. I mean, that would be I, I would love that as the takeaway here. Yeah, there, there probably are all these different vectors of globalization. There's you know trade is the movement of goods. Movement of people is sort of immigration policy. Um, movement of money is is banking and finance, and um, and then um, movement of ideas is the internet. And so there's sort of a those are, you can sort of analyze it in terms of these these uh, these different sectors. Uh, and there were in theory all these ways these things should work. In theory, you know, free trade is is a positive sum exercise where both sides benefit. You know, I think it was you know 
Adam Smith who said, you know, why would anybody ever throw rocks in their own harbor? And, mm -hmm. and, uh, and then, you know, um, being able to, to move, you know, between countries and, and places is also something that you might expect to see in a dynamic, healthy world. So there are, are sort of all kinds of ways these things are, in theory, pretty good. And then in practice, they went, they went very haywire. The movement of money piece was in some ways the global financial crisis where people were um, sending the money to all these different places all over the world where they had no local knowledge mm -hmm. and, um, and uh, it was badly invested and then the banks blew up. And that, so that you can think of 2008 as, as um, the financial part of globalization kind of blew up. And so then, and then you know, one version would be, well, it's gonna just stop and we're gonna stop sending the money. And uh, it sort of got replaced by governments. So if, if you think about um, Europe, sort of a mini globalization in the form of the European mm -hmm. Union, the EU, and, and basically in 2007, German savers were voluntarily buying Italian bonds. And sort of this uh, international financial flows. After 2008, nobody wanted to do that anymore, but the Northern European government stepped in and started doing it and somehow mm -hmm. kept that game going for, for another decade or so. But yeah, my, my intuition is that it's very exhausted. There's obviously a China version of this yeah. where, you know, um, in 2007, people still talked about globalization as, you know, all the developing countries, and they were going to converge with the developed world. And it was sort of, it was a sort of convergence theory of history. And um, in some ways, um, that story got dominated much more by, by China. And there are, you know, there are sort of, there are ways in which China has been growing, but it's actually not been globalizing if globalizing means becoming um, you know sort of a um, a Western liberal democracy and uh, and so China is actually you know this place that hasn't been following that script terribly well and if the biggest country in the world doesn't fit the picture of globalization at some point to tell you you know the theory is wrong right. the Fukuyama so think... end of history theory was a version of globalization and uh, I always say that you know in, in 2000 you know the end of history itself, was obviously over, uh, ended uh, in 2017 when G becomes dictator for life. You know? <laughs> right. And so I think, country I think Blake, gonna, Blake yes. Masters, who you co-wrote uh, Zero to One with, I think his line on China was, we thought that we would make China more like us, basically, by, by having a conversation with China about what's going on with the world. And instead, we became more like China. So I, I take it you probably agree with that premise generally. It's a very it's a you know, it's a, it's, it has a great deal of very disturbing truth to it. And uh, where, yeah, there's sort of all this, you know, social credit scoring, centralized control. Obviously, um, we're still very far ways off from China. You know, I wouldn't want to move there. China, <laughs> China is a lot worse than China was 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I, I think, you know, I think it was, you know, it was a one-party communist state in 2012, but I don't think it felt as heavy-handed and as totalitarian as it does now. I mean, there's, there's, I don't, I don't know what the right metaphor is. It's like the Cylons in Battlestar Galactica, where they've just been the tech. The tech is just. It's like all the surveillance tech. Everyone's being monitored at all times and all places, and now in a way that they they were not a decade ago. So is is the white pill version of that that it just can't sustain itself long enough? If you if you surveil people constantly, if you control everything constantly, eventually you cannot maintain that level of control. Something to that effect. There are. Um, you know, there are, there are stories we like to tell where it's just going to collapse. And they're, you know, they're also very pessimistic. I think those are too optimistic. And then I think there are ones that are, you know, overly, um, overly pes uh, pessimistic where China's just going to take over the whole world. It's yeah. somehow it's more efficient or, or, or things like that. And I, I think both the extreme optimistic and extremely pessimistic stories are probably wrong. It's somewhere in between. And, you know, you know we have to we, 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 do, we should not assume it's going to collapse on its own. We need to think very hard about, you know, um, you know how we, how we um, rise up to the challenge that China represents. And it has, you know, it has all these dimensions, military, technological, economic. It's, it's sort of much more multifaceted than the challenge the Soviet Union was, which was you know, much more uh, military and you know, ideological. When you say we, is it like, is it our political establishment that, that we are the ones that are going to have to deal with this probably? Like what, we, we, what, we what actually always, is yeah, the we, we is always, now? that's a good catch. We, yeah. we is always a very ambiguous word. So yeah. it means we conservatives, we libertarians, it means we Republicans, right. we Americans, and we the Western world, or we 
all the countries that are not China. Yeah, or maybe we. Or maybe <laughs> the two, the two of us. Right. The two of us. Right, like, so, but, but what do you mean by that? Like, in, in, in a sense yeah, all, of, like, all, all of the were, above. Yeah, all, of the, all above. of the above. You know, there's, there's, um, there probably is, uh, you know, there's always a debate between, uh, let's say, you know, uh, the, the President Trump's policy was somewhat of a unilateral anti tough on China policy. And, uh, and there's obviously a sense where a multilateral approach to China is, is more powerful and, and better. It's also hard to pull off. And, and so multilateralism in theory is good. In practice, you have to always worry that that's, uh, that's almost like a Chinese communist uh, decoy tactic where they're <laughs> intentionally encouraging us to be multilateral because they know that will go super slow. Right. Basically like having the UN do anything. Or the WTO point, or like all, these, yeah. all these multinational agencies that have, that have been you know, semi hijacked. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, but I, I think, yeah, I think there are, there are ways in which, uh, yeah, one should start with rethinking it on, on a, on a U.S. level. And then, uh, and then, and then, uh, uh, it's, de- it's definitely something we need to bring our allies into. Do you think we have enough sort of, not mental acumen, but do we have enough like juice left in America to, to tackle things properly. I think, I think that's what a lot of people are feeling right now, that the incompetency is so across the board and Biden is so either mentally compromised or mm-hmm. has the wrong ideas or is staffed the wrong way or whatever you want to call that, that we just don't have enough left to, to do the right thing in the world. You know, we, um, the, at least the, as it stands there, there are always worries that I, that we have that we're exhausted, but I, I, I kind of wonder whether this is just sort of the baby boomer narrative mm-hmm. where, you know, the boomers were, so. they were this very big generation. And then the country was always defined by the age the boomers were. So the 1950s was this innocent childhood time because the boomers were 10 years old. Mm-hmm. And the late sixties was this, um, great, uh, youth movement because the boomers were all in college. And the 1980s, the boomers were yuppies, and now the boomers are all retired and angry old people. And then, uh, <laughs> or hanging and then, on, and then, or hanging on. And then that on, somehow, right? that somehow uh, is the template for the whole U.S. So I, you know, I, I think so. I think the complicated answer is there's some truth to it because the boomers have dominated our society, and they're sort of in a in a strange place right now as a, as a generation. Um, but uh, but they're not the whole society. We're not all boomers. Do you think that's a little bit of, um, because people are living longer and medicine has been good and technology has enabled people to be sort of functional longer, that now we're ruled by octogenarians who, you know, basically should, you know, when you see Nancy Pelosi up there, it's like, go go with your grandchildren, go play with your grandchildren. You don't have to be out there still, or Biden, you know, it's like they can't let go because Science, in some ways, has kept you them know, it, going. It, it hasn't. It hasn't changed. It. It's been frustratingly slow. I mean, we've had some some extension of uh, life expectancy. It's actually reversed the last few years with yeah, COVID yeah. and the opioid epidemic, et cetera. But um, but no, I think I think the main the main dynamic was um, you haven't you never had a generation like the boomers. You know, the, I'm you know I'm Gen X. Yeah. You know, there are millennials. Um, and there's some generational sensibility you can tell, or silent generation. There's some generational story you can tell around other people, but the, you know, the 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 generation with a really strong identity is the boomers, and I think it's there were just so many of them. It was like in 1946, there were 20% more kids born than 1945 or something. It was like a step function up, and then you get the birth control pill in the early 60s, and you have fewer fewer babies, and and so it was just it was just a lot of people. Where does that put us, the Gen Xers, that seemingly should be doing the thing right now, and in, I suppose in some cases we are, but but really are are the missing generation in an odd way. We focus on boomers and then, you know, millennials or Zoomers or whatever it is. Like, we've sort of missed the people that are between, say, 40 and, you know, late yeah, I've 50s. Yeah, I have all these resentful Gen X yeah, things, yeah. I can say, but uh, <laughs> I, no, I, th- I think there's, there's probably some narrative where it's a smaller group, and uh, and so there's a risk that you end up being sort of left out. I mean, I think there's some things where we did perfectly fine. I mean, yeah. we had our we had our share of you know Olympic gold medalists because <laughs> you get those at a certain age, and we were right. we were at the right age at a certain point. Um, you know, it's uh, we had 28 years of of boomer presidents, and I sometimes wonder whether we're ever going to have a Gen X president. Yeah, it's just it's not enough, and maybe you you just skip to the the millennials. So. Um, you know, the Silicon Valley story in the 1990s was the internet companies were started by Gen X people and mm-hmm. then somehow bought out, taken over by by boomers. And that's, that's sort of what happened to almost all the companies in the 90s. 
and then the boomers probably had a healthier relationship with the millennials, where it was those were the millennials were their kids, and so they were they were a little bit nicer to the millennials than they were huh. to us. We were sort of more their competitors. Wow. So we, when, we were when, the replacements. When, when, when PayPal got acquired by eBay in um, 2002, and it was sort of this boomer company, and we were this Gen X company. Uh, one of my uh, one of my friends, David Sachs, said, uh, yeah. you know. Um, if it would be a movie, we called Meet the Parents, where yeah. sort of this stodgy, <laughs> older people company it was going to clearly not be fun when, yeah. they, when they took over. But uh, actually, you need a you need sort of a word for um, for people who are half a generation older, not related to you, and are going to be a lot less nice to you than your parents. Right. And so we, need, we be, do need a word for like, that. Would, so I think that it would be more like um, I don't know Meg Whitman would be like more uh, Meet the um, the um, the um, evil uh, young stepmother. <laughs> right, right. So actually, since you mentioned Sachs, do you find it interesting if you were to look back 20 years ago and boy, you know, Elon's doing everything he's doing now. You've done incredible things. You know, Sachs is becoming an outspoken political voice, you know, really anti-war. He's one of the people leading that thing. That this crew of, pay, you know, the PayPal mafia, so to speak, mm -hmm. you guys are all still in the mix in mm -hmm. a, in a odd way. Is there something special about what was going on there 20 years ago? It was, or it's more than 20 years at this point. You know, it's 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 always hard to uh, it's hard to tell the story. It was it was um, I don't I don't think we've really appreciated the time, but yeah, it was it was a phenomenal group of people. There's always there's always a sense where PayPal didn't really succeed in that big a way. You know, it was was a successful exit in 2002, it was, you know, one and a half billion acquisition by eBay, but it didn't you know, we couldn't figure out how to run the business on our own. It made sense to combine it with eBay for all sorts of reasons. It was, you know, you know, in some ways a depressing, but a very rational thing hmm. to do. And then- Did you feel that at the time? That, that maybe you wanted to hold on a little bit longer or something like that? It, it, we didn't see, it, it was hard to see a path to an independent business where, you know, eBay yeah. had the store and we were running the cash registers and the people running the store were trying to figure out how to get their own cash register machines to work and figured it out one time we'd be sort of out of business. And then there are ways you could gradually diversify away from eBay and but it, it, it took like a decade in practice. So I I think you know I think I think the combination made a lot of sense, but then it somehow short circuited the business. Whereas you know so many of the other tech companies just scaled and scaled and scaled, which was like the Google history or something like that. And um, that would have been you know a far more successful version, but uh, probably would have done less. You know, if you if you were if, if you if you had um, you know if you'd gotten on board the Google rocket at the right time you should have just never gotten off right when you see the the frustrations that people have with these things you know the sort of lack of trust in these things you know is the government wor working to silence you on Twitter or how is Google mm -hmm. manipulating the search results or all of these things do you also see those as inevitable problem problems that were going to happen as these things uh, with these things the reason I ask is I heard you give a talk at mm -hmm. Natcon you gave the keynote speech last year and one of the things you said was that nobody represents the individual at these big conferences. Mm -hmm. And I sort of think mm -hmm. that's the same problem that we have with tech. Nobody represents the individual anymore. We just have these giant corporations that, or these giant tech yes. companies that make decisions. You cannot get somebody on the phone. You can't, you can't actually communicate as yourself. You, there is, you know, there's a business version of it, something like that. Yeah, there probably are all kinds of ways they, they have biases in that direction. You know, there's, uh, there's always uh, Noam Chomsky, the communist MIT professor, yeah. and I always like to quote him on this, where he, he says that, you know, the Republicans are the, parties, the party of business, and the, but the Democrats discriminate. The Democrats are the party of big business. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and, and there's sort of like a center-left- Look at you quoting a communist. There well, you, you go. Know, Every now and entirely again. wrong about yeah. things, or, you know. Yeah. But, um, but there's sort of a, a center-left sensibility where, um, you know, uh, basically, Big businesses can be regulated. They'll follow all the rules. Small businesses, you know, um, they often make a little bit more money by uh, being in a gray area, not following the rules to the letter. And, um, and so there is probably just this structural anti-small business bias that's, that's uh, you know, political, regulatory, cultural, partisan. It's very yeah. deep. Were you shocked how obvious that became during COVID? I mean, where, you know, Target could stay open for, you know, the big box store, but the mom and pop that was selling the exact same thing next door got closed. That, that shows the bias right there, right? The system just kind of eliminated a certain set of people. Uh, yes, I think, I mean, I, I, th I think it was, um, yeah, it was, a, I mean, a dramatic shift in terms of the, the power of big relative to small businesses. And uh, it probably, 
I don't know. I, I, th- I think in some ways COVID surfaced all these realities that had been there for a long time. Yeah. And yeah, this was this is the institutional center left establishment in this country. You know, it's, it's it's good with big business. It's it's anti. It's very anti small business. How did you fight some of that with your businesses during COVID and figuring out you know were people going to work from home or, or just all of the nonsense that everybody dealt with? Did did you try to give as much power to your employees and say do what you got to do or? Well, you know, m- m- most of the because even now a lot of the people still don't want to come back. That's one of the problems that that Elon's yeah, most, having. Most of the tech companies were were pretty um, well positioned to adapt to to COVID. Where you know, if you're if you're there were sort of ways you could do the remote work. Um, you could work remotely, do things like that, uh, and it seemingly didn't hurt the business too much. And then, of course, there was there was a way where. COVID shifted a lot to the internet, so sort of a lot of the the tech companies in which I'm involved, you know, got a got a big temporary boost from COVID, even though you know maybe they maybe they actually got you know more bloated, less well managed in the last two three years, and that's that's what I worry about. Yeah. So it, it was it was actually sort of a windfall for them, and then the question is just did they did they really take advantage of it, or or did it, did they get um, even more dysfunctional in various ways. Do you think more people in the tech world, or maybe even in the political world, actually think like you to some degree, but because of the way we, the hive mind is, or the globalist movement, or whatever it is, they just sort of always go to that. But I think you know, if you privately sat down with these people about what their real beliefs in the individual are in capitalism and these things. Uh, directionally, yes, but I, I think it, I always wonder if it actually works if you can't say it. So, uh, so yes, the, surely, it's the, almost the definition of political correctness that it distorts things, yeah. and that there are all sorts of people who are people are less politically correct than they appear to be, because political correctness is about appearances, mm-hmm. and then the reality is always that people are going to think it's a little bit crazy. You know, there probably are a lot of parents who think the schools went very crazy, but um, but then if you feel like you can't talk about it or articulate it. It's it's not going to be that well formed a view at all, and so that's and so I, I I think the political correctness is is real to the extent it just stops people from from saying things. You 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 don't actually get to a very considered non politically correct opinion. Right. It's interesting because that also then gets to the stagnation part that you're talking about. If people can't talk about what the actual issues are, you then you, you really don't have to wonder why we're so stagnated and why we got. 140 yes. characters instead of flying. Cars. Sure, there's, there's probably some way all these things. Yeah, all these things are are linked. But uh, but um, yeah, I think th- I, th- I think I think if we live in a society where there are an awful lot of topics that are somewhat off limits, you know, where you know, and if we think about science, I let's let's, let's think about sort of um, freedom of speech or debate in, in in the area of science. And I, I always think you can describe science. As involving a two-front war, in theory, it should be a two-front war against excessive dogmatism and excessive skepticism. <laughs> so, excessive dogmatism in the 17th, 18th century context is like the Catholic Church, or it's this sort of decayed Aristotelianism, and you know, a scientist, you know, needs to think for themselves and challenge the the the, um, the sort of ossified uh, dogmas or ossified metaphysics, and you just do an experiment, you think for yourself. Um, but then you also can't be a scientist if you're too skeptical. So mm-hmm. if I don't think you exist, and I think you're just a <laughs> right, simulation, right, right. or yeah. it's everything's fake, nothing's real. Um, I'm just in a brain being, you know, I'm just a brain in a vat being that's manipulated why I got by mad scientists. Interviewing atheists. That, that's, that's not <laughs> yeah. a good. That's not a good world for science either. Yeah. So you can't be too too dogmatic. You can't be too skeptical. Yeah. Um, and sort of a probably healthy version of science cuts against both. Excess dogmatism and excess skepticism, but um, my scoring is it's all anti-skepticism at this point. Uh, the scientific establishment—it's all circling the wagons. And yeah. We have a climate change skeptic. We have a—you know—you can't be skeptic of—you know—you can't be a vaccine skeptic. You can't be a skeptic of of anything. And so it's all against skepticism, which is of course the exact opposite of you know, let's say a children's science book would be that a sci- right. scientist thinks for themselves and is. Is against dogmatism. So, not against so what do skepticism. we do? What do we do to break it's 80% out? Eighty percent anti-dogmatism, twenty percent anti-skepticism. That's healthy science. We're in a world where it's hundred percent anti-skepticism, and that's a tell that it's that, hyper-dogmatic, and that the scientists, you know, the scientists can't talk freely about the science. And if you have, you know, if you have, 
if you have dissenting views, you better keep them to yourself or your government funding will get cut off and they're, you know, they're all in the sort of government welfare or something like that. I mean, look at the last three years of COVID and I think you pretty much get your answer, was a shockingly narrow range of discourse allowed in science. W- was there a moment during There's COVID? Other science and scare quotes. Yeah, right. So was there a moment during COVID where, where you realized how dysregulating that effect was that you couldn't get a counter? I mean, I saw you a couple times during COVID for, for dinners and things, and it was like we weren't wearing masks and we were sitting there. I don't even know if you were allowed to have people at your house. Like, but, but humans continued. And yet the machine just kept telling you, no, stay in your house and wear the masks and get the vax and da da do. Uh, I had I had had a lot of skepticism about all these things before. I would say, yeah. or the skepticism about the excessive dogmatism of science. Yeah, and um, and I think uh, I think that had, um, but yes, I it was it was still it was still striking. It was like you had these uh, I don't know you had these public health officials. All these people were. It was just again the opportunity to to really um, to push it in a conformist, standardized way. And so, it was it was it was, it was extraordinary about it wasn't just the dogmatism and the uniformity, but it was, it was the Orwellian character where um, we pivoted radically from black to white, A to not A. And so, you know, it was, it was, I, 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 I'm not going to get, the history was so, it was so, so many twists and turns, it's hard to even keep it straight. But I, I believe October 2020 was still Kamala Harris saying that she would never take a vaccine, yeah. a Trump vaccine. A Trump vaccine, yeah. And then, you know, um, and then when I, I first, that you literally shouldn't trust the agencies because he has something to do with it. That's what and, she said. And then you know, and then um, a year later, it's it's like you're a really crazy person if you don't get one. So so we had this, these sort of Orwellian twists in the narrative. You know, yeah. there was there was the uh, thing where the, originally the masks didn't work because they were trying to lie to save the masks for the hospital workers or something. Right. And then you pivoted on that. There was you know anyway there were all these these crazy twists and turns. It was, you know, there was the initial, the very initial one where, um, you know, um, it was just, we shouldn't shut the border because that's anti-globalist. And then, <laughs> and then when, uh, when Trump, you know, um, uh, and then when Trump, President Trump didn't, wasn't restrictive enough, then somehow it all shifted into the sort of Puritan right. nanny state. Yeah. So it seems like it all flipped almost, I think this is what you're saying. It, it happened so quickly that we almost couldn't react. Like, so the same people who were saying my body, my choice were the same yeah. ones yelling at you that you must be injected with the thing I want to inject you with. And yeah, I think yeah, so that it's, it's, was it's so sort of, it's sort of like, it was like, you know, the sky is blue, but no, they were saying the sky is green and then the sky is orange and then the sky is yellow. So it was, it was, it was, it was just this dizzying shift in the dogmas. What, it wasn't like that? the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages where at least the dogmas stayed the same for a few hundred years. Yeah. They don't they didn't change them like every six months. So what does that tell you? I guess this is a little bit of what you're you're doing at Stanford now. Um, what does that tell you about people's belief systems and, and how they operate? Well it's it is because uh, they seem to believe anything on any given day. You could almost depending on who was president mm-hmm. and what their uh, you know party was, you could get virtually anyone to say almost anything. Yeah, I, I, I would say, uh, I would, I mean, it's hard to do sweeping generalizations about our society, but it, it's, uh, it's striking how many things are not very well thought through at all. And there are, yeah, I think there are, there's some set of things where things are doctrinaire and dogmatic, and then um, there are all kinds of issues that, uh, that barely even register as, as problems and we, we don't even talk about. So I, yeah, I think there's this, yeah, this official ideology, but it's almost like a magic show, hypnotic trick where, you know, it redirects our attention from other things. So, so people have, yeah, they have very well-defined opinions on, on the vaccine, and those are sort of officially set. Mm-hmm. But then if we talk about a topic like tech stagnation or you know, how, how fast are we developing vaccines generally, or how fast are we curing other diseases besides COVID, um, that's something people don't even think about. Right. What, what are you thinking about that maybe the average person isn't thinking about. Like if we if we're to get to the other side of the stagnation and let's say we start breaking through some of this stuff, which we will eventually, some society has to, I think, uh, to some degree, what should we be thinking about? Well there are I mean there are there are a lot of there are a lot of different topics one uh, one one could. I mean I, I know there's, there's there's some that I've you know I feel I've 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 thought about um, there's probably a small number that I always keep coming back to that yeah. uh, um, 
but uh, I got but, one I want you to come back to. I'll tell you in a second, but I want but, to hear what you, you know, say. Probably, probably the you know the 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 big the big one is always just um, you know I don't think our society is progressing that quickly in that many dimensions. Why has it slowed? What's what's gone wrong? Why has that happened? And that's probably that's probably the uh, the big topic question theme that I've I've come back to over the last uh, two decades over and over again, and uh, and then there are yeah there's all sorts of different answers one can get to. Um, there probably are good reasons for us to be so slow, but I, I think it it it, it pushes you out you to ask a lot of deep questions about our society that it would be good for us to think about more. So the one that I I don't know if you're thinking about at all anymore I suspect you are at least at some level is you you were really interested in seasteading a couple probably what, 15 or so years ago, this idea that there could sort of be these libertarian utopias, yes. sort of international waters where people could do experimental yes. medication and operations and things of this nature. To me, it feels like so many people have such a lack of faith in the system that there's an opportunity there again. Does, is, is that registering with you at all? Is it, do you feel like the operation is gone? Has someone else picked up maybe where you left off? They, they, are, they are still trying to, trying to do it in various ways. It's, uh, it's, it's not that easy to do. You know, there, there probably are, on some of there are technological issues where it's not that cheap to build. Right, okay. And then, and then there are all these reasons where, you know, you have to sort of, if you, if you do that, you have to, if you have something that's floating, um, what if, you know, if you have a freak storm once every 20 years, how do you model that? You know, mm-hmm. if you have a ship, you can move it out of the way, but yeah. Seastead, not so much. So it, it turns out to be, you know, it t- turns out to be quite hard but what was you know it was it was sort of the small side project I started was Milton Friedman's uh, grandson Patrick Friedman who who pitched us on it in I think it was 2007 2008 and uh, what was surprising to me was how much it caught fire as you know not as a technology but just as a thought experiment because uh, um, even if these seasteads are very hard to build um, it was obvious that uh, that um, if we could redesign our society, if we could somehow start over, uh, we would do it so differently. And there are all these, there are all these legacy structures that are very hard to undo. Maybe, I mean, don't necessarily want a total revolution, but, but um, there are all these ways that we're in a place that no one, no one would, if you looked at it from first principles, no one would build a society would, like we have today. So, so is there a way to do that, maybe just not doing it by building a structure in the ocean, like finding some land in the middle of the country and just trying it at sort of a micro Yeah, well, there's obviously, there's obviously, yeah. no, there's obviously, look, there's obviously this sort of um, movement between different parts of the country that has been accelerated or restarted post-COVID that, that I think is uh, very important, very healthy. Um, yeah, there, and then there are there's still all sorts of things you can do on a city county level. It's you know it, 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 there were also reasons it was non-trivial. You know uh, there are a lot of um, a lot of a lot of cities are unusually dysfunctional, but they also are very powerful economic networks. Mm-hmm. And so um, there's sort of a reason you know in a place like San Francisco. You know I lived I lived there for a long time. It was very um, dysfunctional on a governance side but it was you know it was it was also in the middle of this uh gold rush tech boom Mm -hmm. and then uh it it actually it wasn't that it was that you had um you had this bad governance sort of in contradiction to the tech boom it was almost like the bad governance came with the tech boom Mm -hmm. it was like people were fine paying this tax because they they were doing so well and so there's sort of are there are these natural network effects these natural economies of scale that come with cities but that also paradoxically, if you're not very careful, lead to extremely bad governance. And so, you know, there are, you know, there are a lot of relatively unregulated states, but there aren't any people, not enough people there. So it's sort of, you know, there's a way that Alaska, Wyoming, South Dakota, mm-hmm. New Hampshire, you know, they're all fairly unregulated, but to the extent that um, what we do as human beings has a social component, the sort of networked component, um, um, they, they, you could never get the critical mass of people to move there to, to make it work. Do, do you sense that the states will just continue to go their separate ways, that we'll just sort of see that and that will be a natural, that it'll actually kind of be okay as long as they agree not to go to war or something like that? I, I, think, I, think, there's, uh, I think there's some of it. It's, it's, I, I, I wish there were more. Yeah. But, uh, but I, think, I, think, I, know, I think that that's, that's probably what's, uh, what's still, you know, very healthy about the U.S. is that it's it's still 
somewhat of a federalist system. There's, there still is, you know, some degree to which the states are genuinely different places, and uh, you have these 50 different experiments, and uh, and you, it's not all about politics and voting. It's also about, you know, economics and exit. What do you make about what's going on culturally in the country in terms of, you know, the Super Bowl was a couple of weeks ago. I watched, like, I'm watching the commercials. They didn't feel, I didn't feel any attachment to any of the cultural references. The halftime show, like, as Breitbart said, you know, politics is downstream from culture. It seems like we don't have a culture that's unifying us in any way now. Yeah, I, I, uh, it's always, it's always so hard. It's always so hard to know exactly um, exactly what's what's going on. Um, it's probably, you know, if there was something that would be unifying, I, I don't know that we would like it that much. <laughs> like it, it would be, it would be like a crazy woke religion, right? And you know, it's I'm always hopeful that uh, the insanity, you know, has crested and is 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 receding. And so, uh, so yes, if we if we had something that would be unifying. It would be it would be the woke religion on steroids shoved down everyone's throats, and uh, and it's probably you know it's probably the, the fact that it has this sort of um, not very strong, slightly nihilistic feel may actually be be relatively healthy. Right, you know? that's the that's the white. It may be relatively healthy. So so in terms of better things for people to believe in, so you are. C- can I say teaching this course? Are you actually teaching this course at Stanford? What do you what do you, consi- I've, co- what do you- I've, I've, I've co-taught yeah, yeah courses at Stanford occasionally over the years. It's always yeah a lot of work, but sort of fun process to think about things and uh, yeah. So and what so what are you doing now? Because obviously this, this, you don't this, you don't need the gig. Obviously this, this, you're doing this, this quarter, because you enjoy we're, it. We're just doing um, forbidden topics, and this 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 quarter we're doing political theology, which um, means basically what does what does politics tell us about God, and what does God tell us about politics? And they're both um, these deeply transgressive, forbidden questions. I, I, I started. I'm, I'm starting to wonder that these questions of religion are, you know, somehow they are. I'm not saying they're necessarily the most important, but they're they are the most transgressive. They're they're the ones that uh, somehow we we can't ask at all. And 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 there's something there's something very generative in in looking at that prism through. You know, through a lot of different lenses. You know, what what is the religion in our society? What what is it that people, um, what is it that people value? In the, and then, yeah, how does how does that work? Yeah. So, what what would you say is the sort of broad answer to that? What what is the religion of the people here, from an American perspective, right now, in in a system that seems to be very obviously shaking to most people? Again, it's it's always hard to do these sweeping generalizations, but it is, you know, it's in some sense. Um, you know, it's in some sense. I think. I think of it. I think of the, the woke, liberal religion as as a, as a, kind of antithesis, but also a kind of intensification of the Judeo-Christian tradition, where, you know, both Judaism and Christianity, um, um, look at it from the side of the victim. You know, the Jewish people are the victims in the Old Testament. You know, Pharaoh is the oppressor. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you know, there's a way in which Christ is the victim in the New Testament, and there's there's something that's very true and very powerful about this, you know, reorientation towards um, towards the victim, towards you know, justice against oppression. Well, that's and, interesting. So you then, think over the course of thousands of years, basically, it, the the victim idea was just baked in. So so wokeness is just an extension of that in some ways. And then and then in some in some weird way, it went into you know hyper overdrive or, you know, and then there's always, you know, the Christian version is always, you know, um, it's always, it ends up becoming this competitive thing where people try to be more Christian than the Christians. And, and so, you know, um, you know, um, you know, the poor shall inherit the earth, Sermon on the Mount. And then, um, you know, T- Tolstoy or Marx, the 19th century, it's, 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 no, we need to, you know, we need to actually intensify that and we need to have a violent communist revolution and accelerate that process. In, in this world, and um, and uh, and then I think I think sort of a, lo- a lot of um, yeah a lot of uh, a lot of the woke religion can be thought of this as this incredible intensification of this. And of course, you know there are all these paradoxes where people use their victim status as a stick with which to beat other people over the head. And so there's sort of all these you know all these all these dynamics about it. It's obviously 
not particularly Christian in that um, you know you still have this um, this uh, great sense of historical injustice, but there's no forgiveness. Yeah, right, right. So there's a lot of there, revenge there. there. Sort of, yeah, um, yeah. It's sort of, it's, sort of, it's but it's always this uh, it's always this revenge in the name of you know wronging injustice. How, how do you find teaching a course at or co-teaching a course at Stanford? I mean, you are one of the guys that said, hey, you don't have to go to college. As a matter of fact, my producer here, I was having dinner at your house once and I was like, I really want to hire this guy. He wants to go back to college. And you were like, you got to tell him, don't go back to college. Yes. And it all worked out. But but so there's a little bit of a, a tension oh, there, I right? Think I, sure. There are all these all these things I do that are somewhat self-contradictory, but yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, you know, I don't know. It's I'm, I'm against social security, but I'm going to get a social security <laughs> check if it's still around. And uh, if, you know, if I was... Um, you know, um, if I was, uh, you know, in a, I, I, if, I, if I could take advantage of diversity in hiring, I would, I would definitely use diversity quotas to help myself. So, um, even, so I think, I think there's nothing, there's nothing hypocritical about. Um, Is that just the honest version of all of it? I mean, I always felt that that was Trump's honest version of all of it. They'd be angry at Trump over taxes, and it was like, well, don't blame me. Blame you guys who created all these stupid rules. Uh, I, I think, I think it's always complicated. There, you know, yeah. there, there are all these. Yeah, there, there are all these different dimensions going on, but I think, look, I think, I think the, I think that there is a way that uh, that um, you know t- teaching a course is a terrific forcing function for me personally to think about a lot of topics, and so you know I I get a lot out of doing it. I don't read enough books. It's a, it's a way to force me to do that. On the other hand, in the same breath, I can also say that uh, um, this doesn't happen in most other college courses. That most of it is. Um, is sort of this debt-driven racket that's gone very out of control, where it's 300 billion in student debt in 2000, up to two trillion in in 2020, and uh, and yes, yeah, in the context of this of this larger system that's uh, that's very very broken. So uh, so I think, and then I think you know there there are there are sort of you know um, there there's always this duality between exit and voice, and so mm-hmm. there is you know there is a version where. Um, yeah, it would be good for fewer people to go to college and for people to vote with their feet. And then, uh, and then at the same time, there's always something to be said for uh, still trying to do, you know, to fight the fight, you know. And, I, you know, I went to Stanford, so I, I have a certain, um, a certain attachment to, to that university and, you know, want to want to still try to do something on the ground to make, to make it a better place even though maybe that, it's like maybe it, maybe it's like uh, maybe it's like fighting you know the the San Francisco city uh, city board or something like that board of supervisors right although i've told you many times it's a lot more fun to be in florida fighting for something than always fighting against something which is what i was doing in cali mm-hmm. which i would imagine there's probably a time for both of those right yeah well it's it's um, but yeah but it's it's there, there but i th- i think i think we should always um, you know, there's a trade-off between exit and voice, but you, you, you want to think of both. Yeah. Do you think about that? I mean, just in general, like you can do whatever you want. Like you, if you wanted to disappear altogether and go to Galt, Galt, not that easy. Just, not that easy to do. Yeah, but but you know, roughly. It's Uray, Colorado. Yeah, that's 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 the spot. No, that's that's the town. Galt, Galt. Oh, right. Of course, of course. There's an actual town in in Colorado. Yeah, but I mean, do you ever think like it's about a thousand people live there? I've I've thought of just buying a bunch of real estate there, but not quite sure. Uh, let me just ask you one or two other things, um, uh, just circling back to some of the things we covered. So we talked a bit about the globalist stuff and WF and all that stuff. When you see this sort of like wide variance, I think, between, say, someone like like you and Elon, who I think are, are you know mostly lined up together, let's say, and then how that seems so starkly different than someone like Bill Gates, and yet you guys all seemingly came out of something roughly similar. Does that seem bizarre to you, that, that people evolve so differently? Is that the right way to frame the question? You know, I, uh, man, I, I, um, I, I never want to even compare myself to Elon. That's always yeah. a d- dangerous thing where you always end up end up losing to Elon. But I think I would say I am. Well, you I, guys I, are I, seemingly I, I, fighting I am, for the same thing. I am. I am. Distru- I'm always disturbed by the degree to which tech has become the sort of San Francisco, Silicon Valley is close to a one-party state. Yeah. And you know, there, there's a way in which, you know. Elon is a dissident from that at this point. You know, I, I've been I've been a dissident for 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 a long time, um, and and um, yeah, and then what what this but what this sort of you know strange conformity means. You know, it's it's 
I can, I can come up with sociological explanations. You know, I'm tempted to do something like, um, you know, the people were somehow narrowly trained in computer science, which was very, um, very important and very useful. But then they never actually thought about most of these broader social, political, cultural issues much at all. Right. And uh, and I, I, you know, I don't know Bill Gates terribly well, but I. Um, I, th I think he's he's probably a fairly high IQ, smart person, but I, I I think he never really thought about this stuff very much, and then just somehow went with the wisdom of crowds, went with the liberal consensus. Right, because it's bizarre. It's that's like he's that's, the, that, that's my sociological explanation because I can't I, I I can't actually right I can't come up with an explanation how how a person would would sort of rationally really get to these these answers. Well, because I think then you see people seeing him on TV all the time and it's like he's the largest farm landowner in the United States suddenly or farm owner in the United States and you know he has all this stuff to do with the vaccines and all these things. And I think most people are like, "Wait a minute, weren't you a programmer 30 years ago? Like what happened here that got you to think you can sort of be, you know, king of the world, something like that?" Well, there are there are um there are I mean, I don't know. There are all sorts of ways you should you should probably, you know, be, be you should try to sort of steel man what what Bill Gates is doing. I mean, there was some place where he made a lot of money at Microsoft, and probably was not entirely satisfied with that. Certainly not with where it was reputationally for him at the end, where it was sort of this, you know, cutthroat monopolist charges and. Um, and uh, and then there was, you know, this attempt over the last decade and a half to reinvent himself as this sort of uh, leading philanthropist. And um, and I, so I, I think I think you can, I don't. Know, um, and then there there are versions where this was sincere. There are versions where this was just some sort of rebranding exercise. I, I think it was probably more sincere than just a just a rebranding. But you know, it was obviously had elements of all these things. Sure. Um, and then, uh, and then I think, yeah, I, I think there are probably ways one can also be critical. Where my 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 guess is that he did more good for the world at Microsoft, even even though it was in many ways, you know, all these things were problematic about it as a business. But Microsoft did more good for the world than the Gates Foundation has done, and and then that's a very odd thing. That's, <laughs> so that's not what that's not right. And I, I don't think that's that's interesting. That's not what Gates expected. Yeah. And um and but it is. There's something about. The consensus, um, sort of center-left establishment that's that is just really exhausted, and you know it would have would have been good if he he'd thought about these things, you know, with a little bit, you know, a little bit less of a doctrinaire mindset. All right. So then, to ask you one more question, not about Bill Gates, but about yourself, related to all that, you've been early on a lot of things. You were early on getting out of San Francisco and seeing what was going on there. You were early on Trump. You've been early on plenty of you were early on Facebook, all, all of these things. Right now, do you feel do you feel hopeful? Do you feel that we can fix a lot of the things that we've talked about here and, and get through the stagnation and get to a place where we can trust some people again and that the system will start working right? Is that a, a ridiculous exercise? I mean, what, your general state of like belief in the thing. Well, it's it's uh, I always uh, I always think you know extreme optimism and extreme pessimism are both equally wrong because yeah. they're both excuses for laziness for not doing yeah. anything. And I so I, I think that. the answer is always in between. Yeah. You know, I, as a venture capitalist, I still most of my focus is on individual companies, and I think you know there are a lot of you know there are a lot of companies that can do quite well even if our whole society isn't progressing as quickly as I would like. You know, on um, you know I think the broader political social questions, it's it's very hard. It is. It is. It is. You know, it's just going to be. You know, I think a crazy intense fight for the next decade. Um, and um, you know, my 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 sense is that uh, my 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 sense is that we're on the we're on the side I'd want to be on. I'm not sure our side's going to win, mm -hmm. but uh, but it's it's uh, it's it's going to be much easier to be on our side than uh, than defending all this stuff. All right, right. Then I, mean, I have it's, it's just it's just the, 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 there's so much so much surface area that they have to defend. It's, right, that and that does no seem sense. like why it gets increasingly hysterical because they can't defend it anymore. So it's constantly the, yeah, the, you have the to, litany of lunacy is just you have to you know you have to if you're going to have these massive lockdowns in society, you also have to lock down debate, and you have to lock down speech, and you have to uh, 
and that there's probably some version of it where it's very unhealthy. You know, I, I always, you know, if you sort of personalize it in, um, in the person of the president, sort of somehow always a crystallization of where our society is at, um, you know, there, there are all these questions about, you know, you know, you know, Biden's, you know, mental acuity and, you know, maybe he never had that many marbles to start with, but, but, um, but, uh, but, you know, the, the, the version of it I often wonder about is whether, um, you know, um, his inability to um, address these questions or speak with them, is that actually a feature more than a bug? Mm-hmm. Because um, if you had, if you had sort of a very sharp liberal person, like, I don't know, like Pete Buttigieg, it would just look ridiculous. <laughs> like, you know, we'd expect some answers, we'd expect explanations, he'd be trying to give us explanations, and they would look so absurd. Right, and now all we ask is that and he doesn't, if, if, you know, If Biden explode. is just relaxing yeah. in a basement, that's, uh, that's very protective, maybe. You've given that's us... That's maybe the best they can do. I guess that's the white pill, right? It's like our enemies but, but again, aren't that great. I, I think, you some, know, I think, look, I think, I think there... But, yeah, and it's, 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 uh, yeah, I, I think there's a, there's a lot of room for, for things to get better. Well, Peter, you have to keep up doing, doing the good work you're doing, David. Well, as always, it's a pleasure to talk to you. And I do want to, uh, you know, we do this usually off camera, but I do want to publicly uh, give you a thanks for something because about three years ago, as we sit here in the local studio now, I got on a Zoom call with you and, and uh, my partner in locals who's sitting in the other office right there. And we had an all cash offer to buy the company. And you basically said to us, and I said, Peter, it's, it's life-changing money for me. Do you think I should do this? And you said, basically, you said, uh, if you believe in it and you get distribution, you have a much bigger opportunity here. And we waited it out. We did not take the offer. And then obviously everything happened with Rumble. So uh, I owe you on that front. How about right. that? How about right. that? Very good. Good to see you, my friend. Awesome. Thanks for tuning in to The Rubin Report. Don't forget to review, share, and subscribe to this podcast. If you're looking for early and exclusive content, you can join me on Locals at rubinreport.locals.com.